Barry Howard Minkin from Brainwashed. America's Cultural Revolution. I watched with disgust and disbelief as the corrupt Biden administration gave a huge amount of money, from the COVID relief trillion dollar boondoggle, to fund equity programs. Equity being the latest slogan misused by the victimization and device racketeers, to cover their robbery of the treasury and taxpayers. If there were still a few honest investigative journalists left, they would easily uncover massive corruption in such schemes as the Equity for Black Farmers program, by just following the money. These unimaginative crooks committed a similar fraud that gave minority criminals shade to steal from the Treasury, under a crooked Obama administration program called Pig Ford Farmers. Looking for more corruption a real journalist might look into the mishandling of the DOJ slush fund under Eric Holder, Obama's AG. Read my book America's Deepening Divide for more about this fraud. How sad it is that so much of black leadership is greedy, corrupt, and divisive. They believe that race should trump merit in admissions and jobs. How about the BLM leader using the extortion money from naive donor idiots to buy mansions in LA? The lack of good role models, black racist academics, and broken families has produced the looters and rioters who show disdain for our laws, country and values with their nightly unchecked temper tantrums. Things will get worse until we stop rewarding in these black racist idiots and put an end to the deadly victimization in device con game. But with so many of these inept, low-life losers pulling Biden's strings I'm not optimistic for America. The Sorry State of Black Leadership Jesse Jackson Jesse Jackson, in my personal opinion, is the worst of the black leaders. His ego, need for control, greed, and stamina keep him looking for the next mark or opportunity to exploit. He uses his high profile to promote racial division, and to support the American haters at home and abroad for his own enrichment and promotion. He gets credit for developing the Great Con, which has developed into a multi-billion dollar business for generations of black victimization and divisity extortionists. He should also be credited with doing more to divide our country and brainwash a generation than any other corrupt black leader. We have reviewed his greed earlier but his chutzpah, inflated ego, and self-serving opportunism continue to both amaze and scare me. He was as obvious when he tried to costume his addiction to headlines, respectability, and money with his colorful poetic preacher rhetoric. This hypocrite, known to have a mistress, counseled President Clinton after the Lewinsky affair. Jackson and Clinton did have something in common, according to Ken Timmerman, author of Shakedown, they are both compulsive liars. Timmerman outlines lies about Jackson's athletic and academic achievements, as well as the spin regarding his actions during the assassination of Martin Luther King. For example, Timmerman reports that Jesse Jackson was not on the balcony when King was killed, when Jackson and his camp have tried to show a picture of Jackson up on the balcony with King. The picture in question was actually taken the day before. It was in fact a publicity shot. Though never elected, this troublemaker often goes over the president's head to get his unwelcome or into foreign policy areas. It appears that if he can embarrass the US and get a few bucks while visiting a foreign dictator, like Omar Gaddafi in Libya, it is all the better. His meetings at the United Nations with Kofi Annan to discuss Iraq undermined our State Department. His visit to Castro's buddy, Hugo Chavez, provided support for this anti-US radical. Jackson also tried to influence how Venezuelan oil is distributed and priced in the US he showed up to direct the flow of billions of federal funds to storm-ravaged New Orleans. Like the Black Caucus, Jackson was quick to assign racially motivated blame for the way the disaster was mishandled. Lately, he even suggested that attacks on Barry Bonds' records are also racially motivated, rather than caused by alleged steroid use. Jesse Jackson accused of racketeering by top black businessmen. One of America's wealthiest African Americans, asked by Jesse Jackson to assist with Jackson's Wall Street project, said that the tactics used by the civil rights leader amounted to racketeering. Harold Doley Jr., 
a broadcasting executive rated as one of the country's 100 wealthiest African Americans by a newsletter covering blacks on Wall Street, said that he was the victim of intimidation at the hands of Jackson. Dolly is fighting the Federal Communications Commission's efforts to block the sale of his television stations. After initial exuberance about Jackson's stated goal of making corporate America look more like America from the entry level to the boardroom, Dolly became disillusioned. Jackson, who seems to believe he has an inalienable right to get a piece of someone else's pie, went after the multi-trillion dollar pension fund industry. He sought legislation that would require that 10% to 15% of the nation's pension funds be brokered or managed by minority firms. Dolly, like most stand-up people, disapproved of the methods Jackson employed in persuading the pension industry to aid minorities. What worried me was the way he operated, dealing with those veiled threats, Dolly stated. He soon realized that Jackson was actually directing an enormous income from pension, funds, by channeling them to roughly 10 firms that qualify. Dolly doubted that most Americans knew that they, were, paying and putting money in Jesse Jackson's coffers to the tune of $170 million in commissions a year, 10% of which is going to Jackson. These antics might seem all too familiar to those who have followed Jackson's career. Al Sharpton A quarter century after a black teenager falsely accused an innocent white man of rape, she has begun paying reparations for her slander. The man who rocketed to fame on her falsehoods is still at it. If ever there was a case of racial injustice it was the case of Tawana Brawley and Stephen Pagones, except the roles of victim and perpetrator were reversed in the parallel universe of the racial grievance industry. The master of that universe is Al Sharpton. Pagones is not as well known as George Zimmerman, nor is he likely to be now, given the media's subservience to that grievance industry. But 25 years ago the former New York prosecutor was accused of rape by Brawley, then just 15 years old. Sharpton, the man who demanded justice for Tawana as she told her blatantly false story, is the man who now demands justice for Trayvon Martin, the teenager shot by Neighborhood Watch volunteer Zimmerman, who was found not guilty of second-degree murder in what a jury ruled was legitimate self-defense. As the New York Post reports, Tawana Brawley has finally started payment on a defamation judgment awarded Pagones. He sued Brawley and her handlers, including Sharpton, alleging the story that she was abducted and raped by a gang of white men, including Pagones, was a hoax. A grand jury, which heard from 180 witnesses over seven months, concluded in 1988 that the entire story was indeed apocryphal. Brawley's advisors in the infamous race-baiting case, the Reverend Al Sharpton and attorneys C. Vernon Mason, and Alton Maddox, have already paid, or are paying, their defamation debt, at least the monetary part. Sharpton has never paid in human terms for the damage done to Pagones' life, which quickly unraveled, even as Sharpton's career as a race-baiting hustler pushed him forward to his current job as an MSNBC commentator. Pagones' marriage collapsed, and he left his job as a prosecutor. Sharpton has made a career of racial incitement. He once called Jews diamond merchants and described whites moving businesses into Harlem as interlopers. He helped incite three days of anti-Semitic rioting in 1991 in the Crown Heights neighborhood of Brooklyn, turning a tragic traffic accident into a riot where two people died and more than 100 were wounded. Then there was Freddy's Fashion Mart in Harlem in 1995, subject to the Sharpton campaign to drive out. Interlopers. To scare the Jewish owner away, Sharpton turned a tenant-landlord dispute into a racial conflict, resulting in arson of the store and seven deaths. Pagones, who now works as a private investigator, has said he'd forgive Brawley's debt if only she would apologize and admit the truth. Brawley has not and says she will not. Nor has Sharpton, who's been rewarded with an MSNBC forum to spew his racially divisive venom. And the mainstream media only yawned. Sharpton long ago should have been mocked and shunned, if not incarcerated. 
that he has not been is the ultimate injustice here. I listened intently as naive CNN Barbie doll Paula John, in her best drama queen voice, seriously announced to straight man sheep in wolf's clothing blitzer that there would be a special on the serious topic of racism in America. But then I fell off my chair laughing, when unbelievably, she stated that the two experts selected to discuss the problem were the We Deserve No Respect duo of Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton. Having people, who some have labeled as being compulsive liars, hypocrites, and racist profiteers discuss racism, as CNN does consistently, is as useless as plastic vegetables in a soup kitchen. Some people seem to enjoy watching low IQ graduates of I Hate White Men in America hyphenated courses do their What a Racist Country We Live in comedy routine. I Cry All the Way to the Bank for Racial Justice is one of their favorite song and dance numbers. Indeed, for Al Sharpton, the business of racial justice has been very lucrative. His compensation has grown fourfold since the Black Lives Matter movement was founded, tax records show. Sharpton and his tax-exempt National Action Network 501c, 4, organization have been fierce opponents of threats to racial justice since the tragic death of Trayvon Martin in 2012. The death of Martin was only the beginning in a long line of tragedies to which Sharpton and his network have brought national media attention, becoming in the process among the most outspoken critics of police brutality. It has become somewhat of a business model for Sharpton, and very lucrative at that. Since 2013, Sharpton's compensation at NAN has risen dramatically along with NAN's revenues. In 2014, Sharpton was paid $412,644, a more than 70% increase over the previous year, and NAN's total revenues approached $7 million. NAN's average annual revenue in the preceding three years was $4.4 million. NAN's most recently available financial report is for the year 2018, and it lists Sharpton's salary as $1,046,948, a fourfold increase from 2013. NAN's revenues in 2018 were $7.3 million, its highest ever. In 2018, a similar organization, Color of Change, received $8,173,663 in total revenue and paid its president $320,857. That same year, Sharpton received over $1 million, more than triple the amount Color of Change paid its leader and more than eight times what MoveOn.org paid its highest earner. According to NAN's website, Sharpton founded the organization in 1991. It now has 93 chapters across the United States and hosts radio stations in Birmingham, Cincinnati, Detroit, Tallahassee, and Washington, D.C. NAN's About page, titled No Justice, No Peace, lists seven areas of action, criminal justice reform, police accountability, crisis intake and victim assistance, voting rights, corporate responsibility and pension diversity, youth leadership, and bridging the digital divide. This year, Sharpton led NAN's Get Your Knee Off Our Next March in Washington. The march was on August 25 to coincide with the 57th anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King's famous I Have a Dream speech at the 1963 March on Washington. Do you agree Sharpton would have been an embarrassment to MLK? But seriously, these men and their pompous, ignorant apprentices in government, academia, and big tech belong near the top of a list of the most dangerous racists in the country. Instead of having the balls to confront race-baiting hypocrites and profiteers of the reverse discrimination game, MSDNC, ABC, CBS, and CNN bend over backwards to provide these corrupt agitators a platform to attack the true victims of racism, white and Asian America. By legitimizing rather than strongly condemning black racists like BLM, the fake news networks continue to be major contributors to the moral decline of this country. 
Programs that continually brainwash a naive public by making heroes of black races spare a major responsibility for completely reversing our moral compass and negatively impacting the future of our society. Representative Maxine Waters Maxine Waters understood the power of reverse discrimination and cronyism early on, as a legislator in California. I once sent a proposal in response to a request for a small business consulting opportunity. On follow-up, I was told I that would have to hire a black person to lead the project. I explained that a woman in my office would lead it, and it was at best only a two-person job. I was told that my bid would not be considered. Outraged, I asked who came up with this stupid policy. I then heard the name of Maxine Waters for the first time. I asked that she call me regarding this matter, and she did get back quickly. When I explained how unfair and wasteful the policy was, she commented, that's tough, and then she hung up. I have watched her on cable TV with the Congressional Black Caucus, and was reminded of the French saying what roughly translates to those who assemble resemble. Waters is in her element with this poor excuse for black leadership. Black lawmakers providing shade in the case against Maxine Waters, one of the most corrupt people in Congress, shook the congressional ethics system to its foundations. The longest-tenured African-American woman in Congress, Waters is accused of arranging a 2008 meeting with Treasury Department officials to help steer financial bailout funds to a minority-owned bank in which her husband held a stake. Soon after the meeting, Treasury gave the bank $12 million. Her punishment was being appointed chair of the U.S. House Committee on Financial Services which regulates the banks. The wolf now controls the sheep and their bales of money. Like career criminals, lifelong corrupt politicians like Waters and Joe Biden are unrepentant masters of using the old razzle-dazzle to hide their crimes. Andy Waters is currently accused of giving a million dollars of campaign contributions to her daughter, while puppet President Joe appointed a law partner colleague of his corrupt pervert son's defense lawyer to head DOJ's criminal division. Come on man. Did you ever believe we would experience such examples of public corruption in this country? Waters is also a vicious race baiter whose comments to constituents to harass members of the Trump administration wherever they are gave shade to the BLM and Antifa Gestapo attacking peaceful Trump supporters, including children and the elderly and scenes reminiscent of Hitler youth harassing Jews in Germany. Add the banning of books, including one about the worrying rise in the teenage girls who, along with their friends, are deciding to change sex, and you see more evidence of the danger of the fascist left. The Black Caucus How sad it was for me to watch as the opportunistic cabal of black leaders wielded the acts of discrimination with the same frenzy as the white racists of antebellum times. Greedy members like their white counterparts nose their way into the free-flowing pig trough of public money to find opportunities for families and friends, they will, however, get all the pork they want from Nancy Pelosi if Biden wins. Why isn't the Black Caucus speaking out against the tobacco, junk food, and alcohol companies that prey on the nation's young and old alike? Could it be because Anheuser-Busch, Heineken USA, Miller Brewing Company, PepsiCo, Philip Morris, R.J. Reynolds, and Coca-Cola give big dollars to the foundation, and Miss Tina Walls of the Miller Brewing Company sits on the board of the Black Caucus Foundation? This foundation provides the caucus with a way to get its cut of the corporate and Fannie Mae hush money pie for its pet projects. A disproportionate share of congressional ethics violation cases have been brought against Black Caucus members. Emmanuel Cleaver, a Methodist minister and the chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus, stood up and began searching his desk for a Bible. Cleaver wasn't looking up a particular verse or psalm. He grabbed the good book for emphasis. He wanted to hold it in his hands as he declared, with a firm shake, that the way Congress investigates the ethics of its own lawmakers is horribly broken. This is yet another example of blacks not taking responsibility for their own actions, 
but rather looking for lame excuses for bad behavior using both the great con numbers game as well as the never-seen equivalent to the abominable snowman fable, the myth of systematic racism. Cleaver said, the facts speak for themselves. Indeed, they always do, like the reason more blacks are in jail is simply that they commit more crimes. Why they are not in positions requiring academic achievement is also no mystery. Studies continue to show blacks perform lowest of all races on tests like the SAT. The facts speak but they are drowned out by lame excuses from the squeaky will minorities for bad behavior and poor outcomes. Do you agree? The facts say this, African Americans make up 10% of the House, but as of the end of February, five of the sitting six named lawmakers under review by the House Ethics Committee are black. The pattern isn't new. At one point in late 2009, seven lawmakers were known to be involved in formal House ethics inquiries, all were members of the Congressional Black Caucus. An eighth caucus member, Rep. Jesse Jackson Jr. of Illinois, had also been under investigation, but his probe was halted temporarily while the Justice Department undertook an inquiry of its own. Here are a couple of the many corrupt Black Caucus candidates that deserved a perp walk at that time. Rep. William Jefferson Court papers documented a videotape of this Louisiana Democrat accepting $100,000 from an FBI informant. Instead, of condemning this betrayal of his office, the Black Caucus and congressional leaders Nancy Pelosi and Dennis Hastert initially came out in support of the alleged crook, even after the frozen assets were found in the representative's freezer. Rep. John Conyers A. Deanamar recapped allegations that Dwayne Boyd, a former top aide to John Conyers, used Conyers' congressional office to obtain a fake passport after being convicted of fraud, making false statements, and government theft in 2004. Sentenced in 2005 to 30 to 46 months in prison, Boyd fled to Ghana before being recaptured and extradited to the United States. Moreover, Conyers' congressional aides sent letters to the House Ethics Committee and to the FBI alleging that they were forced to babysit and chauffeur his children. Conyers must agree with Mel Brooks, who said, It is good to be the king. Conyers tried to do more damage to our country by introducing legislation against racial profiling. This would have played right into the hands of Islamic terrorist supporters in the U.S., who play the racist card to try to loosen up security at our airports for their terrorist buddies. All told, about one-third of sitting black lawmakers have been named in an ethics probe during their careers, according to a National Journal review. Only two members of Congress have been formally charged with ethics violations in recent years and have faced the specter of public trials, reps. Charles Rangel of New York, censured, and Maxine Waters of California, investigation ongoing. Both are black. Those are the facts, as Cleaver said. The question is why so many African-American members have been in the ethics spotlight. In interviews with more than a dozen members of the CBC, an unsettling threat emerges, they feel targeted. There could be no other explanation, many said, for what they see as disproportionate treatment at the hands of ethics investigators. They describe a disquieting reality of being black in Congress today, a feeling that each move they make is unfairly scrutinized. We all feel threatened, said Rep. Hank Johnson, a Georgia Democrat, as he sat by the fireplace off the House floor. If the only reason that you would suffer a complaint is because of your skin color that is a cause for concern. It is a grave accusation, could the congressional ethics process, ostensibly safeguarded by professional staff members and by a bipartisan structure that allows nothing to move forward unless Democrats and Republicans agree, be singling out African Americans? Not likely, but what is of course happening is another example of what I call the color the facts strategy. Do you agree other explanations are more likely? Perhaps more ethical issues arise within the Black Caucus than within the House as a whole. Many of its members occupy safe seats, after all, and have been in Washington for decades. 
Maybe some of them grew too comfortable or insulated, and they failed to track changing ethics standards. Whatever the reason, the disparity has had a profound effect on African-American legislators on Capitol Hill. People walk around on eggshells, Cleaver said, doing everything they can to avoid attention without retreating from the work that is front of us. Like their efforts to blame the police for the fact that blacks commit a disproportionate amount of the nation's crime, and are therefore subject to more attention by the judicial system, they look for excuses for the unwanted attention they are getting from the congressional committees charged with policing ethics violations. In both cases they would like to delegitimize these law enforcement activities calling them a police force out of control. Since its inception, the office has recommended that the Ethics Committee undertake further investigations in 26 cases involving sitting House members. Twelve of those have targeted African Americans, including Wrangell, Waters, and Jackson. The steady drumbeat of allegations and accusations has damaged the image of the Congressional Black Caucus, which likes to mislabel itself the conscience of the Congress. More accurately they are the hood for congressional corruption. As a result, African-American lawmakers have been in a cold war with the office almost since its creation in 2008. They've met privately with investigators, complained to their godmother, the daughter of a former Baltimore godfather, Nancy Pelosi, who dispenses pork for kissing her ring and unquestioning loyalty. Indeed, this dispensing of pork in the form of pet projects that enrich themselves and their friends is at the heart of the Democratic Party. Look how the Bidens and so many other Democrats somehow became multimillionaires on government salaries. With the blessings of their godmother they introduced legislation to curb its powers to police their corruption. One representative Marsha Fudge, Democrat Ohio, introduced a measure in 2010 to shrink the office's authority, her bill had 19 co-sponsors, all of them fellow members of the Black Caucus. A year later, when African-American Representative Melvin Watt, DNC, pushed on the floor to slash the office's funding by 40%, 25 of the 29 Democrats who voted with him on the failed measure were black. The office is like a police force out of control, said Representative William Lacey Clay Jr., a Missouri Democrat whose father was a founder of the Black Caucus, adding that the disparity reflects larger law and order issues that plague African Americans. What the process mirrors is our criminal justice system, he said. Look at the fact that African Americans make up about 12.5% of the total national population, but we are much higher in the percentages in prisons and on parole and under criminal investigation, and all that. You should recognize the big con numbers racket by now as your brainwashing rinses down the drain. Do you see it now? Omar Ashmawi, chief counsel to the Office of Congressional Ethics, bristled at the suggestion of any bias in the office's approach. Three of his four investigating counsels are minorities. His chief deputy is African American. And one of the office's eight board directors is a former CBC chairwoman. Anybody who would make that accusation is not living in the real world, said Ashmawi, who is Arab American. The Washington Swamp plays the race card and the ethics panel folds its hand. The ethics panel formally charged Waters with violating House rules in mid-2010. But by last summer, the inquiry was frozen, a special counsel, D.C. lawyer Billy Martin, a prominent African-American attorney whose past clients have ranged from Monica Lewinsky to Michael Vick was recruited after allegations surfaced of improper communication between investigators and GOP committee members. Two committee aides who had led the Waters probe have been placed on indefinite leave. The panel's then-staff director, in a memo first published by Politico, accused them of making racially insensitive remarks. Later every Republican on the Ethics Committee, and the top Democrat, recused themselves from the case at Martin's recommendation. These waters it seems are too hot to touch, is it politics over justice? Black lawmakers who have chafed under ethics reviews seem almost giddy at the turn of events. Wrangell, for one, could barely muzzle his pleasure when asked about the imbroglio. 
The ethics committee is presently under investigation, he said with a grin. Growing too comfortable. But the question persists, do African-American members simply commit more ethical lapses? Nobody wants to say that, because as soon as you do, you're accused of being racists, said Melanie Sloan, executive director of Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, a watchdog group. Sloan said it anyway, the Black Caucus really does have more ethics problems. Sloan said she empathizes with those innocent lawmakers who feel targeted. But, she said, plenty of African Americans have been guilty of bending the rules. For the past six years, at least one black lawmaker has graced her group's list of the most corrupt members of Congress. Last year, five out 19 were black. One former fixture on that list, African-American ex-representative William Jefferson, D. Law, is in prison after the FBI raided his home in 2006 and found $90,000 stashed in his freezer. Some of the current targets of probes don't present the most sympathetic of profiles. Richardson has seen a constant churning of staff and one former aide's resignation letter, since made public, called her office toxic and hostile. The California lawmaker is facing her second ethics investigation, this time over whether she forced aides to volunteer for her campaign. The first probe cleared Richardson of receiving preferential treatment from her mortgage lender. Another current target, Rep. Alcee Hastings, Democrat Florida, was impeached and tossed off the federal bench by Congress in 1989 in connection with a $150,000 bribery case when he was a judge. Recently, he has been tied to two ethics probes, the first is part of a group of lawmakers, some of whom are white, accused of pocketing per diem allowances, he was cleared, and another alleging that he sexually harassed a staffer. The Federal Election Commission once levied a fine of $63,000 against another black lawmaker, Rep. Representative Gregory Meeks, DNY, after he billed his campaign treasury more than $6,000 in personal trainer expenses, among other things. He is currently under the microscope for failure to disclose a $40,000 payment he said was a loan. Sloan argued that the caucus's ethics woes stem in part from job security. African-American members so often represent safe districts and serve for so long that bright moral lines become obscured, she said. A 2010 survey by the University of Minnesota showed that black lawmakers hold 22 of the 50 safest house seats. Indeed, most of those entangled in ethics reviews are long in the tooth, notably Wrangell, who took office in 1971, Waters, 1991, Hastings, 1993, and Jackson, 1995. Richardson, elected in 2007, is an exception. Yvonne Burke, who serves on the OSE's bipartisan board of directors and chaired the Congressional Black Caucus in the 1970s, also suggested that some veteran members' long tenure could explain the disparity, but for a slightly different reason. I think members who are there for a long period of time may not keep up with the rules, such as financial disclosure laws that have tripped up numerous lawmakers, including Wrangell, she said. Burke adamantly insisted that race has no part in the office's probes, I can say that very comfortably. Outside influences. No single case has ensnared more black lawmakers than a 2008 trip to the Caribbean island of St. Martin. As lawmakers boarded planes for the three-day beachside conference, Flaherty, camera in hand, was close on their heels. Flaherty, president of the National Legal and Policy Center, a conservative watchdog group, showed up at the meeting, snapped some photos, and handed the exclusive on a corporate-funded junket to the New York Post. House rules forbid business interests from picking up such tabs. The corporate sponsors of the Caribbean conference hung their banners from the rafters, the story spread to other media, and soon the ethics watchdogs in Congress had sunk their teeth into a full-blown investigation. Along the way, Flaherty offered up his pictures, audio recordings, and a copy of the program to help make the case. 
All told, investigators probed six black members for two different island jaunts. All but one was ultimately cleared of knowingly receiving a corporate paid trip. The exception was Wrangell, whose staff was proven to have known that corporations were footing the bill, he was admonished. Corruption and black-slash-left-wing favoritism will be rampant as the Sharpton, Jackson, Waters, and other black cons continue to be taken care of by the low-life left-wing eunuchs running their failed city and state government. The device con men have found a perfect puppet in Joe Biden. Even before his inauguration they have him out supporting asinine, illegal anti-American programs sure to line the pockets of these extortionists, including giving COVID relief money only to black and women-owned businesses. This type of insanity is a sure sign that the Biden administration will not close America's deepening divide but will force it into two camps as divided as those in our civil war. Enough is enough, good-natured middle Americans and now the naive suburban women will finally realize they were indeed duped and as brainwashed as the cultural revolution generation under Mao. Hopefully there will still be enough legal means left to throw these greedy power-grabbing bums out of office before complete chaos ensues. Already there are troubling signs in the pick's empty suit Biden is considering for his cabinet. He is bragging that it is the most diverse cabinet in history. That is true, but picking by color and sex has made it the most radical and unqualified in our history. For example, considering a CEO for a Soros-funded organization into a top cabinet post will successfully complete the megalomaniac's lifelong sinister plot to infect all sectors of society with his cancerous radicalism. Biden apparently intends to hire a man called Patrick Gaspar. Gaspar was Barack Obama's political director, then U.S. ambassador to South Africa. Most recently, though, and this tells you everything, Gaspar has been the president of the Open Society Foundations, funded by George Soros. As Tucker Carlson highlighted, in Patrick Gaspar, George Soros has found someone as radical as he is. Three years ago, South Africa's ruling party, the African National Congress, endorsed a plan of taking land from farmers based on skin color without compensating them. They called it land reform. Neighboring Zimbabwe had already done this under its bloodthirsty lunatic leader, Robert Mugabe, and promptly became the single poorest country in the world, killing a lot of people in the process. No sane person thought or thinks this was a good idea. But Patrick Gaspar thought it was a great idea. As the former ambassador to South Africa, Gaspar wrote an op-ed in the UK Sunday Times newspaper endorsing this and sucking up to the criminally incompetent and corrupt ANC government. Ah, more equity, just like in Zimbabwe. Gaspar added in many forums that anyone who disagreed with both this point of view and land reform generally was, of course, an irredeemable racist. Gaspar later said that he found the South African constitution superior to America's constitution, and George Soros would no doubt agree with that. But would many South Africans agree with that? How many have fled that country in just the past 10 years? Patrick Gaspar doesn't care. Like George Soros, he is an ideologue. For him, as for all ideologues, outcomes are far less interesting and far less important than theories. So you won't be surprised to learn that Patrick Gaspar was once a community organizer, that he once worked for failed New York City Mayor David Dinkins, and that he remains personally close to current Mayor Bill de Blasio. New York City is collapsing, but as far as Patrick Gaspar is concerned, it's collapsing for the right reasons. A natural course of radicals trying to overthrow America with their idiotic venom and actions will be the development of right-wing with a militia to balance the BLM, Antifa, and other left-wing paramilitaries. This is the story of left-right revolution that has played out over history. But the US has been spared of these tragic confrontations since our break from Britain. Your vote began this domino effect. It is your future, I'm near the end of mine. As a successful futurist for five decades, I owe it to future generations to share my insight.